Do you wonder where you fit in these changing technological times? Is the system excluding you or including you? I'm James Felton Keith, inviting you to tune in to Inclusionism, a new code of equity, every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. I'll interview leading activists, academics, diplomats, and business people about what it truly means to be included in the 21st century. That's Inclusionism, every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. on WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. How's everybody doing? Welcome to Inclusionism. It's 5.33 and 55 seconds, 57. It's 5.34 in the p.m. on Sunday. Welcome to my church, Inclusionism, where we like to say individuals are at their best when they identify with a community, and communities are only, that pen was loud, at their best when they identify all of their individuals. Um, this is the show where we primarily talk about ins- exclusion, excuse me, and the ills of exclusion and how we remedy some of those. Um, so this week we have Stephen Breyer, who I'm live on, I think, two or three social media platforms right now, who's here in the studio. Steve, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah. Glad to be here. From well, you're here in the city, but you're coming from from way. I drove. I drove a couple of hours south. Uh, yeah. north, I was north and came north, south to, yeah. to be here. Well, we appreciate it for you. You know, coming all the way out here. Um, a few years ago, uh, Stephen wrote. Um, I was a co-author of Austerity Blues, and the subtitle is "Fighting for the Soul of Public Higher Education." Um, I. L- We've had a lot of conversations here on the show about secondary school, but we we'll, we can dig into public higher education. I'm sure you can go everywhere. I can. <laughs> Before we got on the air, folks, we were talking about um, 
Well, we're going through a few history lessons, uh, starting in the late 60s with uh, sort of the state of publicly funded education uh, here in New York and, um, you know, changes, changes that we're all living with, changes that at least I uh, was was born into. And we have we have some of our neighbors uh, from Harlem here in the, in the studio. So, you know, if you hear loud noises, et cetera, it's, it's probably them. Um, so as we as we tumble down the rabbit hole, I guess, Steve, where should we go first? Can we can we go through before we get into sort of history of modern education and the stuff that you're doing? First, uh, let me give a little bio background. Um, you're at the CUNY Gra- Graduate Center. I am. And you are the founder of the Interactive Technology and Pedagogy Certificate Program there. What kind of, what, was that like a, a two-year thing? No, it's actually, it's a three-semester thing. It's a, a program for, for graduate students, both yeah. master's and doctoral students, to add on to the, the graduate work that they do. So it's an, in addition to getting their master's or Ph.D., they take a three-course um, program in interactive technology where we sort of talk about not just what you can do to improve sure. the quality of teaching and learning, but how it reshapes the way you think about academic research. That's what I said. So these are people who, would you say that the, the target for this group, these are people who don't understand tech or not, aren't used to using tech in the classroom at least? They, they, they want to learn how to use tech better. I mean, when I classroom. started the program in 2002, I literally had to yeah. ask people if they knew how to use a mouse. Really? And that, well, it was, you know, it was that early was what, on. 02? It was, it was, it was 19, uh, 20, 2000, yeah. 2002. In 1902, um, yeah. You know, 17 years later, um, they're... <laughs> adept at using social media and, and other technology technological forms and so i don't have to worry about that they know technology mm. they want to use it in in, a, in educationally appropriate ways so one of you all's chapters and i wasn't going to start here but you know everyone like most shows we were having way too much conversation before we came in here and i usually try to avoid that because i will skip past everything that we talked about <laughs> <laughs> and leave it all off the table for when we actually get uh, in the studio. But uh, we were talking about the culture shifts from the use of technology. Uh, you all talk about tech as a magic bullet. And what does that mean? Like, Give us some, some context on that. So the, Just specific to higher education. Yeah, right? in higher education, t- uh, instructional technology is seen by a magic bullet as largely administrators who are interested in for a variety of reasons, employing technology to cut costs sure, to, sure. To, for, for you know, a variety of savings. So they see it as a kind of magic bullet. Our argument is we are neither techno-skeptics nor techno-enthusiasts. We're, we're, we're appropriately critical about technology, but we also think it has the ability to really reshape a help students and faculty rethink the basic mission of what education is in the classroom. So is this like just the whole method of, of delivering a, a course? Like I heard someone telling me the other week that they're, they're going to Harvard but online right now? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's been a huge, since since the, the MOOC revolution, um, which was 2012, uh, massive open online courses. That okay, idea, I'm like, what's MOOC? Okay. That's, yeah, yeah it's, it's massive, massive online. open online courses. Okay. Pioneered by, at Stanford. 
yeah. and at MIT. Yeah, I've seen the MIT Open Course War. They, right. they have Open Course where that's one of the one of the major contributors to this. This yeah. was an idea that you know big big technology groups pushed. Um, on universities because they said this is the way to solve the underfinancing problem. Think about it. It comes right out of the 2008 financial crisis. Mm. There's all kinds of issues of, of, of public and other kinds of funding for higher education, and MOOCs were seen as a magic bullet, as a way to solve some of the problems of higher education. In the sixth chapter of Austerity Blues, Mike Fabricant, my co-author, and I really pushed hard against the idea of what MOOCs stood for and what they actually accomplished, which was very little. They okay. promised a lot right. and accomplished very little and certainly especially accomplished very little for students of color, yeah. poor students, students who were you know, starting out in community colleges. Sure. Um, it turned out that online courses are great for people who already have a d degrees. Mm. If you want to get a, a master's master's degree yeah. and you've already got a, PA, a BA and you know how to do uh, uh, reading and writing, sure. it's fine to it's do fine. that. Right. But it's not good for students coming out of public institutions that have deficit, who have deficits in terms of their learning and sure. they're thrown into these MOOC courses without a not, not a lot of support. Um, and it, it, it caused major problems. Would you say that scales, and I don't know if this is outside of your purview, uh, well, of the book or subject matter expertise in general, but does this scale down to you know secondary school students? Oh, I mean, are we using tech in? I have no, I have no kids. I, sometimes I'm shocked when they're on the subways at three, and I remember, oh right, they're getting out of school. <laughs> so yes, they, uh, they they do get out of school out at of three o'clock. Right, <laughs> I'm I, you know when they're out for holidays, etc. <laughs> my weeks just wash, so I never know where I am, and I'm like, oh, there are people here. So the so answer is yes, there yeah. are, there is increasing interest in and use of instructional technology at secondary level, less so in the primary level. But is it also doing nothing for them? Or well, they, I it think it depends them? on how it's implemented, as yeah. in all things. I sure. mean, the idea is the technology isn't the solution. Sure, sure. The technology is a tool that helps you do certain things pedagogically. Yeah. So, and that is, well, yeah, one thing we were talking about before we walked into the studio, I was sort of giving a rant that I always give about how in my industry, someone rigidly in the tech industry or I guess formally in the tech industry. Um, I think we all thought at the end of the 2000s beginning or end of the 90s beginning of the 2000s that we were going to leverage tech to sort of leapfrog the mm -hmm. the sticky conversations that we still hadn't had with ourselves about who we are as people and how we distribute resources to ourselves. So um, that's interesting. Uh, I do I do remember when I was in grad school I could avoid classes altogether, use a proctor. I remember my girlfriend at the time was doing a PhD at Michigan State, and we were far, far away from each other. But because she was a faculty member, this is sort of telling on myself, but it's fine. I think I'm, I'm far past it right now. <laughs> um, she would serve as my proctor for exams, and they would mail her my exams, and mm -hmm. she would email them to me. And I would take them, you know, I'd get two days to take an exam before I sent it. And they allowed you to do that. Yeah, and it wasn't called an online course. No, but, no, But of this was new, right. you know, this was the end of the 2000s, so it was, just, it was just using tech to do what you would normally do. And I was like, you know, in South Africa or France or somewhere taking an exam. Well, and just I mean, a distant learning yeah. has some real 
you yeah. know, kind of positive aspects to it. I liked it. I mean, uh, I mean <laughs> and in fact, in the book, we talk about the origins of it as yeah. correspondence courses going back to the late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah. Where people took courses and the technology was an envelope with a stamp. Yeah. yeah and you yeah. received things through the mail and you wrote exams and sent them back. That is and tech. It, you know, yeah. then we did radio and then we did television, broadcast and 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 closed circuit. We then did we radio. Did, we for did, education? We, we did for, radio yeah. for right. education. All right. Chapter six. Take a look. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm missing that one. Yeah. Really? Okay. So that, okay. So that was a part of that. All right. Um, let's go to, uh, well, because, so the, this book is really though about um, the lack of the money, lack of money in the system and how we In large measure. Out. Yes. That's right. So, I mean, I want to go into sort of a history of the underinvestment of education in, um, when you're talking about higher education in general, I'm just going to use that blanketedly, oversimplify and say the underinvestment in people, period. Right. And so is there, you know, per the book, uh, a change point in time that sort of. I, I mean, few. I think you, it, it depends if you're talking nationally or you're talking locally, New York State, California. I mean, what's interesting is we don't have a unified national policy sure. on things like higher education. And I'm particularly, and Mike and I are particularly interested in public. Yeah. Uh, we're less interested in private. In private, yeah. Higher ed, which has a whole different history and a different framework. Sure. But as someone who was a total product mm-hmm. of public education from kindergarten to Ph.D. in the state of California, when mm-hmm. I went, um, I didn't pay a dime in tuition for anything all the way through my Ph.D. Oh, really? It was tuition-free. California was a pioneer along with New York State, yeah. which is what we write about in the book. And as a working-class kid, I could never have afforded the education I got if I had had to pay the kind of tuition right. that students now have to pay to go to public institutions. And that's really a product of the post-1970s and 80s. Up to, up to 1976 in New York, for example, yeah. CUNY, which was a, a relatively new system, was only created as an institution in 1961, yeah. even though where we're sitting, City College, had, traces its roots to 1847. Yeah, the municipal college system. All of the, right. all the CUNY schools up to 1976 were tuition-free. Yeah. So there's a history, 130-year history mm-hmm. of free tuition, free public higher education in New York City. Yeah. Little less so in the state. We can talk about that or not as we wish. But what changes? Fiscal crisis happens with the city. The yeah. City goes into fiscal crisis in seventy five, seventy six. Tuition is imposed yeah. by the board of trustees, and in effect, everything follows from that. So it's about what commitment do we make? We made a commitment in 1846 by referendum Mm -hmm. the citizens of new york voted Mm -hmm. to have a tuition-free institution paid for out of tax dollars same thing happened in the state of california after the second world war the system expanded dramatically with tax dollars sure and people didn't pay tuition so something changed in the late 70s and early 80s and that's what the book is about is trying to understand that moment historically when what I would describe as neoliberalism or or austerity policies and politics changed the way we thought about a public institution like public higher education. And we all of a sudden said it's no longer a public good. It's something private that we individually need to pay for. 
That's, that is a big. It's a big. That's a yeah. huge difference. It's a change in yeah, and philosophy of how we distribute exactly. that. Well, to use exactly. a new word, good. Yeah. But we were uh, earlier. We were you all. You and some of my um, fellow hosts who are who are here in the um, at least in the building were talking about 1968 and unions and just. Can you take us sort of down memory lane pre pre 1970? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You are. Were you speaking specifically about? I'm just trying to jog your memory, and you, so that you can go there. But were you speaking about New York unions, uh, like UFT? Yes. Okay. So not nationally. Not nationally. Not nationally. I, I, I mean, there is a national movement. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to. And CUNY is part of this story. Sure. Along with what happens in the public schools, K-12, and yeah. my next book, the book that I'm going to publish after this one, when I finally get around to writing it, yeah. is a book on that moment in the late 1960s in New York when community control of education was a central issue politically mm. in communities of color in Brooklyn and in Manhattan hmm. and in the Bronx. Yeah. And int- I'm interested in sort of what happened to that movement and, and what came out of it. One thing that happened in 68 was the United Federation of Teachers, led by Albert Shanker, went on strike against three experimental districts in, in Manhattan and Brooklyn that were under community control, which meant that the parents and the, the teachers who they brought into the school yeah. controlled what happened uh, in those schools. And that was a, a unique experiment. And the union went on strike and threw a million New York City public school t- students out on the street in mm. order to, to, to destroy the community control movement. Hmm. They succeeded. The union did. The union did, mm-hmm. led by Albert Schenker. The union did, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a terrible strike. It was a, as as a book on the strike is called. It's the strike that changed New York, and what it did is it fractured what had been an historic connection between, particularly the black community, and progressives, particularly. Jewish progressives sure. in in the trade union movement, it's it sundered that relationship in a fundamental way, and it was a a, a horrible horrible defeat yeah. for progressive forces. And remember, this is a, in a period when New York City and the nation is being sort of transformed by the Black Power movement, by sort of the the, the effort, uh, the civil rights movement sure. sort of moving. MLK died that year, uh, RFK. MLK, yeah. you know, or Malcolm, died, the, yeah. RFK died, MLK died yeah. in 68. Yeah. That all contributes to, to the context in which the strike happens. Yeah. Where CUNY comes in is yeah. the immediate next season, which yeah. is to say from fall of 68 to spring of 69, students of color across the CUNY system um, basically go on strike Hmm. to demand open admissions. And, and, the, and the effort here at City College was one of the most important, mm. though not the only one. And one of the things they demanded, well, they demanded two fundamental things. They said we need more students of color. In this case, it would be African Americans and Puerto Ricans because that's who yeah, Latinos that were in that and period. Yeah. That's New York. Yeah. That was one. And the, the, the curriculum needed to be changed. And that's when we get black studies and Puerto Rican studies and Chicano studies on the West Coast. This yeah. is a, an, an extraordinary moment. And what, ha- and what they're reacting to, they're, they're challenged by the community control movement. They want to 
basically support what community control is. When they go out on strike, they make a demand to rename City College Harlem University. They Mm. don't succeed, but it's an interesting insight into how they saw public education being public higher education being tied to particular communities. Sure, sure. And so they go out on strike for these two things across the system. They shut down the CUNY system effectively for most of the spring term of 1969. And one of their big concerns is despite the civil rights revolution, despite everything that's going on, despite the fundamental transformation Mm. of the New York City public schools throughout the 1960s, which are by the end of the decade, almost 50 percent black and Puerto Rican, Oh, really? The, oh, yes. Almost I don't know 40, that was, uh, 45, 46 percent because a million white These New are the Yorkers, kids. Because yeah. of the kids, a million white New Yorkers moved to the suburbs uh, and a, almost a million black and Puerto Ricans moved in. move into the city. Yeah. The, the complexion literally of the public school system changes. And as you might know, CUNY and the public schools are intimately connected. If you go to college out of the New York City public schools, Mm. 80% of the people who go to college go to CUNY campuses. So it's a a deeply embedded connection between the two systems. Yeah, a bunch of my in-laws did. And so so I will give you an example. In 1968, take a guess what the white population, the percentage of white students at Brooklyn College was in 1968. Students at the percentage of undergraduates at Brooklyn College in 1968. What percentage were white? What would you, I mean, given the city and everything else, what would you think? I would think like 75, 80%. 75, yeah, yeah, 96. Oh, City College was 92 percent, uh-huh. and the reason yeah. was. Because there were so few seats within the CUNY system because CUNY had been savagely underfunded by the state and had not been able to ramp up its tax dollars. The competition Mm. for the seats to get into the elite colleges, which were City, Hunter, Brooklyn, and Queens, those were the four senior colleges at that point, was intense. You needed a 92 high school average to get into Brooklyn College. Yeah. Um, And so basically it was all white. And the students, the black and Puerto Rican students go out on strike in spring of 69. They say the the population of new undergraduates needs to reflect the city much more than it does now. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, they win. They get the CUNY Board of Trustees that very year implement a new open admissions policy in Mm. the fall of 1970. Mm. And so by the time, you know, there are about 120,000 students going to CUNY in 1968-69. By 1972, after open admissions is implemented, it's implemented in 1970, the population of CUNY almost doubles or more than doubles. It's almost 250,000. And 20 to 30 percent of those are students of color. Now at a, at the half a million mark, it's well, it's yeah. a, it's undergraduates. Yeah. It's it's two forty five. Half a million would be everybody doing adult education and continuing education. Okay, they, yeah. the, CUNY likes to fudge that number a little bit. It's, it's just a it's a it's a staggering unbelievable number. number. Well, yeah. I mean, and the point about CUNY is it's yeah. the third largest public university system in the United States. Yeah, which you know, in the five boroughs, what are 
Who else do you do you have? What California? Cal State, not Cal UC. State. Cal okay. State and what Texas? San, somewhere San Diego in Texas? State is Cal yeah. State and SUNY. Oh, and SUNY, SUNY. right, right. Of SUNY's course, a huge system. It's all Cali in New York. Right, every county in New what York. What does Texas has have? Are they even competing? They're they're a pretty big place. They, Which are they educating folks? Which I just would think that they would SUNY? be in there between New York and California. Uh, I would just assume you know Texas would. It's a, a big system. It's system. a big system, but it's not as big as those two. It's probably there in the top five. Yeah. 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 No, so um, well, thank you for for the history. No, I, I love it. Sorry. I was just you have a history I, professor on a. On no, I love it. I was just going to say thank lecture. you for inviting us to your class because I <laughs> I would sort of want to tumble down that rabbit hole for a bit to get um, some real context to to the change points, and so I guess bringing us up to to modern day, we have about five minutes before we have to take a, a quick break. It's yeah. fine. We have, we have another 30 minutes. Good. Um, I'm usually thinking about education as having uh, some more interesting systemic problems with regards to cost in the, in the modern day. I think uh, they are partially tied to, to real estate. Um, I mean, just the, the cost of the real estate, how endowments are used. But also, I think the fundamental shift is what you touched on from the 70s and that uh, this neoliberal idea of it being a, a property or good that is distributed to a consumer uh, rather than a public good is the big paradigm shift. I think we're still there. Uh, not I think we're still We are still there. We are still there, definitely. And as a result, uh, you know, our understanding of, of how this again, good is distributed, it, it stifles our ability to sort of remedy the seemingly exorbitant cost unless we're going to go a totally different way and raise everyone's incomes, which I am, you know, fanatical about. I won't tumble down that rabbit hole yet uh, with regards to, to incomes. But um, in the three, it's been about three years since this book yeah, has come Yeah, the book out. was written yeah. mostly in 2015, published in 2016. So the the immediate thing I thought about um, when it arrived was, you know, asking the question, what, <laughs> I feel like I already know where this is going to go. What's changed right. since, uh, you know, since 2014, where you said we we got to publish this next year and, you know, you went uh, north and wrote it and, and came back or however that process went. Yeah. But, I mean, what, what if anything has changed? Changed, uh, yeah. Any silver linings? Any you know? Are there people we need to go and beat up? You know, I'm, a, <laughs> there are I'm, always I'm about people. that. Like, yeah, there are always it, yeah. people to to, to, to confront. Up. Yes, right. definitely. I've been doing push-ups, so I'm just saying. I'm, I dress <laughs> we're going to have to be doing a lot of push-ups, lot of push-ups. given the, the strength of the people we're confronting here. But yeah, any any things that like immediately come to mind? Like, well, they, well, well, here's a here's a ray of hope. Changing leadership, changing. I mean, stuff new stuff that we're hearing. I don't mean new people, but. You know, stuff over the past well, decade. Well, I, I, if we've got a moment, I, what I would say is probably the biggest change that's happened mm. is the – we were talking about this earlier, getting rid of the IDC and, and the control that the Republicans had over the state Senate. Oh, you really went right in there. Okay. Uh, yeah. Really? Oh, no, I'm right. going right there I because, I, because here's – I like it. Here's, <laughs> I'm thinking of CUNY. CUNY, yeah. like SUNY, 
relies about two-thirds of its funding on the state of New York. That goes back to the fiscal crisis. And in yeah, effect, they're just holding it, yeah. And in effect, we have a governor who, mm-hmm. like his father, has literally no interest in what happens at CUNY, in fact, is hostile to it. And mm. so my only hope, now that the progressives, reasonably progressives, control the state Senate, is that we might be able to build a coalition that begins to see possibilities for increased funding for CUNY and for SUNY. I think what we've got to get back to is an idea of converting the private good into a public good. And, and the only way to do that is through taxation sure. and through an, a, a political ideological argument that puts public higher education front and center on the agenda. The problem right now, sure. as you know, in New York State is higher education is very low on everybody's list. Everybody talks about K-12, yeah. which is not to say that's not important. Of course it is. Yeah. But when talking about K-12, it almost sucks all the air out of the room. And we don't talk about public higher education. And and I would argue this CUNY is one of the great engines of of mobility for our citizens. And also, more importantly, from my perspective, we're we're educating people how to be good citizens. That's public higher education is not just about jobs. It's about, in effect, educating citizens. You know, we should. I'm actually not going to take a break. And I saw. uh, a call come in just email us on the site and we'll you know we'll publish more of steve's bio and and some questions etc on the site but i think we're just going to sort of speed through this because i want to i want to touch on that um really quick just two seconds you're listening to whcr 90.3 fm the voice of harlem that little girl is like 25 i now. love that yeah <laughs> <laughs> that voice always made a long time ago um yeah we're just obligated to pe- play the uh mm-hmm. the station id uh, every half hour, hour right? yeah. yeah or just at on the hour so right. it's six uh in some seconds but um no uh, to your point even when what we were talking about before the show as i think we were sort of uh, tumbling down the you know the secondary education uh, rabbit hole and talking about and and there's all these new documentaries out. I just saw something I can't remember if it's on Hulu or Netflix about how segregated the school systems are. But yeah, all of my in-laws who are all immigrants from Venezuela and came up here in the early '90s, they all went through that same school system in Brooklyn. Then they all went to Hunter, uh, and it was their pathway. Um, even when they were accepted to other schools, they couldn't. They could only afford to go to to CUNY, and it was it was expensive when people my age were going. But um, when we talk about those budgets, and that yes, we have quashed the IDC now, and we um, you know we have a bunch of new progressive senators up there who are willing to work friendly with the assembly. We'll see how progressive the assembly actually is, or if they were you know just sort of playing around. Um, the the cry that's going to come from not only the Republicans, but but some Democrats who are in play, uh, especially outside of the most progressive parts of the city. So, you know, when you move outside of Manhattan, certain parts of Queens and certain parts of Brooklyn, folks become in play and they're just going to say, well, how do we pay for it? Right. Always we're not. We're that. not. And so I've had a few tax lawyers here on the show, some Seton Hall folks. Um, I usually like to bring lawyers on the show. I, I love arguing with lawyers because I feel like if I can if I can beat them up, then I'm I'm good. You know, it's sort of like sparring practice. And every now and again, I trip up about I learn a new word. Anyway, um, they would say 
uh, the particular tax lawyer that I'm thinking about, you know, he would say that we we're, we're not really paying any taxes. And so, or the people who can afford to pay taxes aren't paying any taxes. And so we can't afford to pay for uh, reinvestment in society, which is ultimately education. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what sort of arguments uh, the CUNY system or the SUNY system is making to bring more revenues uh, into into the state that can be funneled down to them. But I think the main crisis right now, I think in w the paradigm shift that we're in is this brand of neoliberalism that we're enduring is it is it is winner take all. Um, everything is an asset to be or commodity to be traded. And so I start to think about probably one of my favorite guests who came on. Her name is Sheila Foster. She lives in the neighborhood, but she just moved down to um, George Washington University. She's a lawyer, a professor of law, and she talks a lot about what we're starting to call the commons and what property, what institutions we put in the commons, similar to like Wikipedia has commons for pictures, yeah. right? And I know earlier we talked about, well, we talked about the internet based on the lack of your use of, of uh, well, social media, not the internet in general. No. Right. I use the internet. Right, I just internet, don't right. do social, no social media. media. Right. Yeah, down with social media. Couldn't run an interactive technology and pedagogy right, right, program yeah, right. without it. Right. So, I don't know, are, are people talking about those sorts of things? Like, what the, like, is CUNY a commons? And because I like the idea of basically putting more property in commons and adding more democratic structure, right? Even when we think about community boards or those old community boards that you mentioned from the 60s, um, I would just look to expand those. I mean, I would think that's a good model to expand. Even our community boards here, though, they're sort of toothless. They're advisory boards. Uh, since mayoral control, absolutely. Yeah, which absolutely. I think most people know. I've started uh, more than a few companies, and usually when you establish an advisory board, it's really marketing, but you don't want them to do anything. You need right. control. Right. And in some, sort, in some private institutions, uh, it's necessary. Um, but... Uh, when democracy is at stake. And public institutions, it's very necessary. Right. I and think. so I think the problem right now is under our borough president system here in the city, no one really has teeth to make decisions about what resources get propped up. And the discretionary funds that they have a say over are so minor. That's right. I mean, you just go, it's for play. Um, I love our, our, my yeah. borough president, Gail Brewer. I love Gail. Gail shows up great, everywhere, but she and she does show up everywhere, and she's yeah. so she's such a committed Democrat with a small. I'm in day. awe of how she, she shows really, up everywhere. And but what does she have? She has a tiny little pot of money to give away. She has a tiny pot of money. I don't, I don't think most New Yorkers even know that a borough president exists. I know. Um, if they're generally politically involved, they will know about a community board. Um, I think when I first came onto the scene, a lot of the, the older ladies here in Harlem would ask me, well, why, you know, why run for office? You should join the community board, join the hospital board. <laughs> and, and, and they're right. They're right. I just, you know, try to talk to, I was blue in the face about, well, I've been doing other stuff, blah, blah, blah. But they're like, you know, I just want to see you on the community well, board. Well, I think, like, you know, it, 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 I think we have to accept the idea that people need to be involved politically. They do. And there's a number of ways for people to be involved politically, that when we're mobilized politically, good things happen. That's what I saw in the 60s, was communities of color got mobilized politically. And what was it about? They were desperate. Their children were being not just miseducated, they weren't being educated at, at all. all. Yeah. I mean, the public schools were a disgrace in the 1960s for students of color. I think that's where we are right now. So. Earlier 
today, actually, I've been for my campaign, I've been running this text banking campaign. So we basically text people who we think are potential supporters, potential donors, et cetera. And one guy from Brooklyn, uh, but apparently I, I think he lives in North Carolina now. He's texting me back and he wrote, I don't like your education policy on the website. Now, I'm running for Congress, not president. So I haven't published really extensive policies because the whole effort is to talk about what you care about most and say, I'm willing to go and argue about it in that elected body. I don't know that we're offering up, you know, I, w I wouldn't offer up a, a plan as detailed as, say, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren's, right, or, or Bernie Sanders. But, I, I don't know. It seems yeah. to me, you know, Congress doesn't control public education well, right. locally well, at right. all. So. But he got into, right, so... But the guy was getting into so, I, but you have to mention the principles, right? You have to say here's uh -huh. here's where I stand in general, and so where the guy went uh, on the text was uh, I don't like your policy because you talk about charters. Now this is going outside of um, you know the the university system, but um, you know he was making an argument for his kids went to charters, and he thought they got a, a higher you know quality education, and. He just thought, you know, well, charters should should proliferate. Why don't we just do charters everywhere? Why don't we make everything a charter, right? And um, I had a series of responses for him, but instead of, because I could talk for an hour, like, alone. But what do you think, you know, in that argument, in that charter versus public, and, you know, we all get that, you know, charters get public funding, et cetera. We, we know how they're structured. At least the people who are listening to this show do. Um, they're all pretty nerdy. But... Um, why is that um, why is that a bad strategy? Yeah, yeah. I think you, your colleague who we were talking with this uh, about before this we with, came in, yeah, um, used the phrase "fool's gold." Yes. fool's gold of charters. Oh, he and did I thought kill that, it that was that a yeah. really, really smart yeah. way to conceptualize it. W what's fool's gold about it? What is fool's gold? It looks like gold, but it isn't. Yeah, and, or if it is, it's got a tiny little sort of nugget of, of, of goodness in it, mm -hmm. not fool's gold does it, but it, you, one could argue that you're, the person who wrote in, who texted, saying, well, my kids did great. That's his kids. They or always go kids. to that one school, and, yeah. and it's one school in one place. Charters were meant to be an experimental system sure. that opened up new ways of thinking about how to do public education. What happened is they were captured by hedge fund guys, by people with a ton of money mm -hmm. who, for both personal reasons but also financial ones, decided that why, you know, as I say in the book, why did Willie Sutton rob banks? Because that's where the money was. That's where the money was, You're right. Money in, in public education is billions and billions and billions of dollars, mm -hmm. hundreds of billions if you take it nationally. Yeah. So what do charters do? Charters get paid by public funds mm -hmm. and actually, like, you know, body snatchers end up staying or using public spaces. They they co-share spaces with public institutions. Yeah, they a lot of pay rent. Yeah. And then what happens is a lot of the guys who are making money on charters are doing it by basically selling them services, Yeah, whatever kinds of services they are. So my colleague Mike technology. Fabricant yeah. and my, my other colleague Michelle Fine wrote a book on, on charters mm. where they analyze all the data and they say there are in a way, some places where charters make some 
inroads and do well for some students. Sure. But overall, their performance is not even as good as public schools. Yeah. If you look at it, it's get past the hype yeah. and look at what actually happens. They're a lousy investment because what they do is they take money out of the public system. I need that book to reference because, I mean, me and this guy were going back and forth, and I, I was trying to remember what we were going after. At first, I was thinking, you know, yeah, that really book I highly, I, I mean, but, sadly, know. with my aging memory, I can't remember the no, title. Just, but, I'll leave myself a note. That but I'm it's Fabricant and Fine, F I N E. And, and I, I would say they did an amazingly good job. I assign it to my students yeah. in my history of public education class. We read the book because it's an important contribution to, you know, basically demystifying all the hype. Yeah. And I think it's particularly true in communities of color. There is this sort of notion like, I remember waiting for Superman, this idea that you've got to save your kids because the public system is so bad. I get that. But I that's totally a dire agree. thing. I mean, that's a, that's really a cultural problem that yes, we're all is. suffering from right yes. now. I think everyone feels alone. That's right. Like the system isn't working. And then there's this other sort of sentiment about who owns what in this system, right? So I think the big problem is there are a bunch of seasoned adults who were born after um, this paradigm shift at the end of the 70s when you know New York was going broke. They were in a, a crisis for a bunch of other reasons. That's right. Um, and now we're all 40. And... Um, there have been people who have existed for the past 40 years who think that they absolutely own certain assets, whether they be you know, specific to the education sector, whether they're certain sorts of real estate, whether they're you know, large gobs of equity in companies that um, service a public good, even utilities, like I right. would call a lot of the tech companies, utilities at this point, um, large supply chains, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Googles. Um, they're but really, they're not regulated like public well, right. utilities. Well, yeah, right. We haven't we haven't come to that point in history. I think that's uh, that'll be the millennials' job, and um, <laughs> I'm happy to wear that hat. <laughs> Pass uh, that torch. <laughs> yeah, you know we sure we 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 know computers. Uh, <laughs> to say it extra plain. So, as that is the work, I think the big moral argument that we're going to have to go through here is is who owns who owns what. And even though I like what Sheila Foster said, who I referenced earlier, who talks about putting uh, public goods, public assets in the, in the commons, commons, you have to pry that out of people's hands. And it's not just the people's hands who think that they own that. It's the other people who are receiving services who also think, oh, that's that's the boss's property, not mine. That's right. And that's really dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And it, and, and it goes... I mean, I would say I, I think the idea of the commons is, a, is quite a wonderful concept. At CUNY, we faculty members basically mm. institutionalized the commons. We were told that mm. the central CUNY administration was going to determine instructional technology and mm. all the ways in which faculty communicated. And we decided to build an open source academic commons. Oh, I didn't chose know that. Yeah. The, the term very carefully. That's a good micro. Yeah, no, and what it that. is is it's a it's a it's a social network. It's built in in in, in WordPress and BuddyPress, sure. and in effect, it's controlled by faculty and students. And it's a, a really wonderful system that we are now exporting for free. Yeah. We're giving it away for free online 
to any you know public institution, to any you know uh, nonprofit that's interested in similarly setting up an academic commons, which is not just what you would do, say, on Blackboard in in, in yeah. higher ed, but allows you to create yeah. a social network. Yeah, I remember Blackboard. Yeah, so it is a social <laughs> network of yeah. So. Okay, so you all have built a real commons. We've built a real commons, and I agree with you completely. Uh, That's the kind of I didn't know you were doing that. That's a good uh, test case. And 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 it's been proven. We built it started in two thousand and nine. It's ten years old now. Yeah, and it's it's amazingly we've got thousands of people in the CUNY community who use the commons every single day. And and so all I would say is you're, the, the the woman you had on is absolutely right. The commons is the way we have to start thinking. We have to go back to an old model. She normally talks about commons uh, a lot of times specific to to like real estate and technological infrastructure, like uh, you know how we lay fiber optics, et cetera. She was doing some work with Silicon Harlem, but. I, I just like that she brought it up because I think it can be applied to everything. Yes, but as sort of the the economists in the room, I'm always wondering after after we have certain things in the in the commons, does it does it serve the ultimate goal? Are we bringing price down, or are are there still other methods that are needed to bring consumers up so that they can get a piece of the of the pie? And I am using this sort of neoliberal language like consumers and goods versus um, I don't know what I. I'm at a loss for words right now about what we would call the consumers of of uh, education if it was a public good, which it should be, um, because Students their capacity. And faculty, issues. I mean, I mean, yeah. th- th- in other words, I think it's a mistake. I think yeah. a lot of universities are talking about students as customers, mm. and I hate that nomenclature. That is not the way I want to. When I was a bit, when you think about Apollo Group, there. That's exactly they're right. There. They're, and it's Trump, about customers. Trump, yeah. It's about and it is a kind of corruption. I agree with you. Yeah. So I think what we want to do is get away from that idea of product. Yeah. And 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 education as leading to something um, that you can you can trade for money. I mean, I think we have to go back to the idea that educating people has a broader social purpose than just getting them better jobs. They should get good jobs. Sure. That's a, that's a, a part of it and and something we should support. But being educated is something more than training for a job. I'm not training students. Yeah. I'm educating students. Well, and that's I don't like the conversation everyone has nowadays around all these specialized schools. I do get the benefit in some of them, but uh, there should be some sort of general education, especially with regards to civics and philosophy added in. I had an interesting conversation with a bunch of parents about giving eight-year-olds argumentation and discourses, like philosophy courses. And the only pushback I got, they liked it in general, but they said I wouldn't want it for my eight-year-old. I'd rather they be in middle school because I don't want to have to have an argument with my eight-year-old because I'm busy. It's And it's, I got that. It's hard enough dealing with eight-year-olds. Yeah, I was like, okay. I was like, all right, you know, as a person with no kids, I stand correct. So no, I think that's like third grade. So, you right. know, fifth, sixth grade philosophy. But I was shocked. Yeah, they say, yeah, but no, I don't want to have an argument with Mike. I don't want to get into a car crash because he's asking me why and he's making more valid arguments than I am. I like, oh, well, shit. I, I, I can I have a personal experience with this. My yeah. daughter, who's now almost 49, a yeah. tenured professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, hmm. um, went to public school all hmm. the way through, as I did. And she got in to Bronx 
high school of science, one of the specialized schools, yeah. actually got, from her perspective, no, a terrible cool. education there. She oh, didn't really? think it was a very good school at all, except she was on the debate team. And debate taught her that, how to make an argument, that was her right, how yeah. to do research for an argument. Yeah. It was the most important thing she was. She became a nationally ranked debater, yeah. which was not common for young girls, yeah. young women at that point. Sure. Now it's increasingly so. She went to now school. Now they're all the debate, yeah. yeah. They're the only ones in school now. <laughs> right. They're, but yeah. but in effect, that idea yeah. of teaching students how to argue and think and conceptualize yeah. and do research is an important part of what we need to do. And that changed her life. It made her who she really ended up being. Yeah, no, it helped me. I, I took a bunch of courses like that and, and later when I, by the time I got to college. But uh, I did like what you said about um, we have to move away from looking at education as a product. In my opinion, I think the only way or the best way to do that formally is through case law. And I do... I'm I'm a bit wonky about tech in general. I do like to look at tech in three very rigid categories. You have, you know, hardware, software, and methodology. So things we can touch, things we can't touch. I know like rocks and fire were probably the first hardware and software. But methodologies are, are tech. So language is tech. Law is tech. Uh, any agreed upon process that we use to yeah. distribute an idea is tech. But, but education is, the only thing that is not technological is... Um, is culture. And I think the most important thing that we distribute via um, via pedagogy is is culture. I mean, some of the stuff are standards that you need to know. I remember social studies as a as a young person, we were basically looking for words in bold to cheat and write down the the definition of that word on tests. But aside from bland classes like that, there was a uh, a method to the rigor of school that we got and people our age got and and we all understood how we how we should speak to each other how we should interact with each other this the sort of math that we covered at a certain age range uh, it not only you know made us progressively better at doing those calculations but it was a it was a culture and how we understood you know what math was from a time standpoint um, so I think there is this, this cultural piece to um, to education in general, and I, I think if we don't make, I'm a fan of suing everyone for everything, because I think you have to have a public <laughs> argument that you can reference, and usually through a process of discovery, you see uh, all sorts of faults. But um, I think that if we don't start arguing um, that this could not possibly be a product that is distributed, uh, then it will continue to be, because the forces behind the understanding that it is a product are entrenched i don't even think that these people you know know what they're doing they're, they're not bad folks they're just trying to solve a problem because they think that you know government is incompetent and they think that the people running government institutions uh people who are appointed to large institutions per elected officials are incompetent and um they're trying to survive people are desperate to survive they want their kids to you know be able to read and, and do math I, I get that, and I think what's interesting to me is the class issue, which yeah. seems to me one we cannot lose sight of. I would say that the people who make the who offer the greatest criticisms of public education, um, and often sit on boards of public institutions, would mm. never send their kids anywhere other than to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. It's and funny they you say want yeah, they don't like want yeah. online education for their kids. They want the old fashioned sort of 
face-to-face, peer-to-peer ways in Deep which inside, education yeah. happened. That's what they want for their kids. Yeah. I want that for everybody. Yeah. I think there are affordances in, in technology that can help us do our jobs better as teachers. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I do is all my classes are hybrid classes, which means I insist on being face-to-face, yeah. but I also have a kind of blogging component. I use the academic commons and and yeah. and, and, and to, post uh, up. to yeah. basically Stuff. get students to engage with one another outside of the two-hour yeah. seminar context in which most classes take place. Hmm. And so I think there are ways in which we can deepen engagement and deepen kind of cultural connection using technology, but it's not a magic bullet. It's a tool. And it's a tool that we, if we're smart about it and we invest in it in a modest way Mm. and not think of it as something that we're going to use to cut costs, Mm. which is my biggest concern about how technology is being used. Yeah, it is all about – yeah. That's a a huge issue. That was my whole early career was cost-cutting. Yeah. So, I mean, I just lost my train of thought. I was going to go – the one thing I, d- I didn't uh, catch from, well, the chapter six, uh, you know, as you all tumble down a rabbit hole of tech is, is it possible to reach a, a new scale to, to reach, you know, more students? Is it, is that even a part of the conversation, even as tech is, is leveraged as something that is a, a cost cutter is in your conversations that you're having in academia and with administrators, is the objective scaling at all, like beyond where we already are? And I know that a lot of those 500,000 you know, that we talked about earlier are you know, non-traditional students. They're coming right. in and doing a class or two, et cetera. And that's technically scale, technically. But is it yeah. possible to scale that, that you know, old-school classroom cultural experience of, you know, I am a student, I'm hammering out new ideas with someone more wise than me, but also people who are right at my level. Uh, I'm making friendships. I'm, you know, trial and error at life. Right. Do you all feel? It, are we hopeful about the future and the ability to scale, like to meet, meet well, more I young mean, people I, where I, they are? I think it would take a real transformation in consciousness to get administrators, as they currently exist. Uh, to think about tech in, in in new ways. I think we try to do it. We try to model it, you know, and, and with things like the academic commons. And, and we do get some support from CUNY Central for the commons, thank God. Mm. Right, you know, but we, we're running this on a shoestring. I mean, we're running it with volunteers and, yeah. and you know, a few technical people who help us keep, keep the commons going. What I would say is technology can be, lead to greater scale in a good way. Uh, But I think you can't create two classes. You can't create the class of students who get the face-to-face and then create this other class, which is a kind of lesser class of students who have to do everything online. And they'll be judged, too. Right. And some students need to do stuff online because they they, have family responsibility, work responsibilities, whatever. They can't get to classes in, in traditional ways. But my feeling is... If we use technology as a complement, as a supplement to what happens in the classroom, yep. that's the best way to use it. Yeah. All right. So it's 625. Uh, I'd love to keep this conversation. I'd love if you come back. I'd love to talk more about 
number one, your next book, but I would also like to meet up with Mike and them and talk about this charter school book in the future. I think that would be great. I think we absolutely have to have this conversation. You, you, you do. Well, all right. So if, if there's that, anything else you want to say? New no, stuff? no. It was a pleasure to be here. I'm happy. You know, Thanks for coming you, down. You, give, a, give, yeah. a, give a faculty member a microphone and an unfettered possibility to talk, and this is not a problem. That's the fun part. Yeah. All right. So, so we'll see you in a, in a couple, maybe okay. a couple months, sometime in 2020. Excellent. Thank Excellent. you. My Thanks pleasure. for coming down. Yep. As we play this money about.